This week marks the beginning of an amazing event that happens every year. It's astounding. It's glorious. It's unfathomable. It's the thing that we've been waiting for, yearning for, longing for, for months now. Do you know what it is? Steelers training camp. Right? Thursday. Training camp. Some of you like that other team. You're yearning as well. Your yearning has been decades long yearning. So we'll give you some credit. Berea, Ohio, Latrobe, Pennsylvania. There is this great event, right, that, that happens this week, the opening of training camp where a green grass smell and man's sweat gets put in one place, right? And, 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 and there's so much enthusiasm and excitement over the reality of a future. And, and we see the reality of, of grown men conditioning their bodies, working hard, running play time after time, running route uh, time after time until they all become second nature. Ready? It's training camp. Why in the world do they work so hard at that? Why, why in the world do they get together so early? I mean, opening day is not till September. That's a long time from now. Why, why can't they do it like we, we did it on Forestwood Drive when I was growing up, right? You get in the huddle and you say, hey, go get open, I'll throw it to you. But wouldn't, wouldn't that save us all a lot of time and energy? Uh, the reality is, is you, you know, some of you who love your NFL or college team, that if they did away with training camp and just showed up on game day and said in the huddle, hey, just go get open, I'll get it to you, we would rise in protest. Why? Because training is good. Training is beneficial. In fact, I would suggest this morning that training is essential. But not only for NFL players, it's essential for all of us in every area of our life. Many of us have trained in some way to do the things we do in life. Many of us have um, uh, suffered the consequences for not training as we've uh, failed to accomplish some of those things in my life. I have lots of personal stories of coming in second to last in 5Ks because I have not trained well right? Training is essential. Many of us have trained uh, for all kinds of things in our lives. What, what about training in our walk with Jesus? What about training for the mission of Jesus? Uh, Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, says this, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, what? Say it. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, you can tell, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and get this, also for the life to come. Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, then why don't we do it? Why is our training for the mission of Jesus often not a priority? Why are we not inspired as much for the training of the mission of Jesus as Stoffer is excited for the opening of Steeler Training Camp. It could be a matter, a subject matter, a sermon series really for the next year, but we're going to only take the next several weeks to quickly consider it. We've been looking 
together at the specific mission that God has called us out for with regard to Covenant Church. Um, and and uh, so we're going to try to apply this training principle to the reality of that mission. I'm, I'm sure that you know it, but I'm going to ask Andrew to put it on the screen so that we can say it together. Uh, people of Covenant, what is the mission of Covenant? We are called out by God to be sent with one another into the world. So we started understanding this in May. We spent some time in May thinking about what it means to be called out by God, that God has empowered us for this mission. It's not something that we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps to accomplish. It's something that God has equipped us for. And we've spent now the last three weeks mixed with all kinds of great speakers in the understanding of what it means to be sent, which happens to be Dr. Bob's favorite part of the mission statement, right? In case you didn't know, he loves the sending part of this mission. We are called out by God to be sent, not to called out by God to create a like holy huddle at Covenant Church at 263 State Street, but we've been called out in order to be sent into the world, even into our local community. Well, this morning, we head into the third aspect of that, which is Pastor Rick's favorite aspect of the mission statement, and that is that we need to do that with one another. With one another. It's the training ground. It's the training camp for the reality of this mission. Using the football illustration, many, if not most churches, operate in the backyard football motif of huddling together and just saying, hey, go get open, right? So we gather us together on a Sunday morning and we give a great word and we say, that's over, go do that, without any intentional plan, without any intentional training. Not only, listen, Not only does that fail the kingdom of God, it's disobedience to the Scriptures, as I think we'll see this morning. God has called us to a mission, and He's called us to a training camp for that mission. And that training camp, I think we'll find this morning, happens with one another in the context of our church. That's where we're going this morning. Are you ready? Thank you. The uh, three weeks now to see that, right? Matthew chapter 28 this morning, verses 16 through 20. Page 835 in your pew Bibles. If you brought your own, that's great. The end of the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This text should be familiar to you by now. We have looked at it twice already as we've talked about our being called because we've taken each section of that mission statement and we've applied it to this great commission that God has for us in Matthew 28. Uh, It is a final word of the living Jesus to his disciples and one we should be very attentive to, one that you should be very familiar with by now. So Matthew chapter 28, hear the word of God, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This morning, three points. I want us to ask um, three questions. Uh, What is the product of the Great Commission? 
But what is the process, which is the training ground of the Great Commission, and what is the point <laughs> of the Great Commission? Don't you love it when one of the points is, what's the point, right? It's good to have. So this morning, let's uh, first address what is the product. What, what are we going for? What are we training for? What really is the mission of Jesus for the church? And you're great biblical scholars, and I'm going to ask you to participate this morning some. And um, so in your great biblical scholarship, why don't you just give me the answer to that question? What is, what is the imperative? What is the command of this text? Thank you. It's to make disciples. A lot of times we make a big deal of the go, and we rightly should, but the reality of our going still is fulfilled by the reality of the command to make disciples. So what is the product? The product is disciples. It's the very thing that Jesus devoted His life to. It's the very thing that the last three years of His life especially was devoted to as He invested in training the disciples. And here in Matthew 28, He is simply saying, do as I have done. I'm empowering you. I've called you out to go, to be sent, to make disciples. Well, an important question. We've asked it before, but we'll ask it again. What in the world is a disciple? Well, we put a lot of religiosity and churchianity around that word, but if we even strip those things away, what is it that is a disciple? I would say this is the Richtofer version of the answer to that question. Someone who is on a journey to understand more of something that has captured their attention. Someone who is on a journey to understand more of something that has captured their attention. John Piper has been much more specific. He just calls a disciple a learner. Others have just simply said it's a follower. Many of us have become disciples of many things, right? From our jobs to our hobbies. Some of us are great disciples of certain series on Netflix. Some of us are great disciples of movies that we've had. I know a lot of irrelevant information about Indiana Jones. I'm a great disciple of his, right? So we, we know that. But Jesus is saying to the disciples here, I'm going to get the attention of many people for my kingdom, and I'm calling you, disciples, I'm calling you, church, to journey with them in their learning and in their following. We've been there before, but let me again just repeat quickly. Discipleship does not begin with conversion. In the church, a lot of times we like to talk about discipleship as picking that person up after they're saved and filling their brains with lots of knowledge. Right? And we make really smart Christians, as we'll hear a little bit later. The problem is that most Christians aren't doing anything that they've been smarted with. Right? So we, we sometimes think of uh, discipleship in, in that we've got to fill their brains with all kind of biblical knowledge. And, and I don't think that's the fullness of discipleship. I think discipleship begins literally before conversion. This journey happens as, as God indeed by His sovereignty brings an interest into that person's heart of the reality that the Spirit comes in and, and creates a conviction of their sin and an interest in the Savior and that indeed, at that point, God places us in people's lives that bring them to conversion. That's discipleship. But there are some of you that love that kind of discipleship too, but once they get saved, you put a little notch in your belt and drop them like a dead log and say, somebody else pick them up and take them. Right? 
And that's not what this is. Discipleship is that journey that you want to take with someone prior to conversion, through conversion, to a place in which, and here's the true test of disciple making, is when they now are making disciples. When your disciple is making disciples, you go, yes, I've done it! Right? That's discipleship. That's the mission of the church. So much more I'd love to say about that, but I hope it helps understand the product of God's mission for His church. And, and in this, I hope you begin, I hope you begin to see the point this morning that training for the kingdom of God does not happen in isolation. It can't happen in isolation, but it happens with one another. With one another. I think this plays out even in our text. God's mission here does not only give us the product that He's after, but it gives us the process as well. And it's here that I think we really begin to flesh out the with one another of disciple-making and of our mission statement. So that's the product. Disciples are the product. What is the process? Well, let me ask you again. I, I see two descriptors of the process of making disciples in this text. They're action verbs. I'm not going to give them to you. I'm going to ask you to actually look at your Bibles. I know it's a crazy thought, right? But it is July, so all of the very holy people are here this morning. Um, and, and it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then there's two action verbs. They, I'll give you hints. They actually end in I-N-G. I'm giving it away, right? But what are they? There you go. Man, Mr. Bombeck knew that before I even gave him the ING hint. That's right. So, listen, baptizing and teaching. Well, there it is. That's the process. And, and I want us to see it. I want to flesh it out a little bit. He, hear that Jesus is very, uh, has very intentional words here of making disciples. He, he says, listen, this making disciples process is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two pretty deep theological concepts here that point us to the one another of making disciples. I'm not necessarily a theologically deep person, so you're lucky. It's, we're just going to end up on the surface today, but I think it's good to see them, right? First is the idea of baptism. Now, we do mostly baby baptisms here at Covenant, and let me make sure that you've been listening when we do that. Do, do we baptize a baby because the baby is saved? No, yes, you get that. That's good. We actually baptize that baby, listen, with the belief and celebration that a sovereign God has loved that baby so much that He has placed them in a family and a community of believers called Covenant Church um, in, in such a way that they would believe one day after being discipled by that family in that church, that indeed Jesus is Lord. It's why we require parents who have their children baptized here to be members of the church, more importantly, that we know that they are followers of Christ. And why we make crazy hard vows when we do that in order that we might be the community that that child is placed in by God's sovereignty to raise them up in the fear and admonition of God. So this idea of baptizing is a community thing. It is a one another thing. Now, baby baptism wasn't the only thing that Jesus was thinking about when he gave the mission in Matthew 28. A little aside, the Baptists would say that they 
Jesus was not even thinking of baby baptism when he said that in Matthew 28, but us Presbyterians are a little ahead of the game, right? <laughs> okay. uh, let's not go there, right? All right, so, so, so the reality is, <laughs> is that that's not the only thing that he's thinking of. He's also thinking of adult baptisms, right? Now, we don't do as many of those at Covenant Church, right? I, I can't wait till we do a bunch of them. You know why? Because that means that we've identified people in the community in, in Sharon that haven't had a relationship with Jesus, that haven't been baptized, that need to be baptized as adults. That'll be fun, won't it? Right? So that'll be a cool celebration moment. We need to pray that that begins to happen. So that, that's a, that's a cool thing. Right? So, so, but what happens there? Let me ask you a question. When, when that adult is baptized, is it saying that they are a believer? Yes! Very good. Some of you former Baptists are like, yes, he finally gets it. That's good. Right? The reality is, is that yes, there, there is a truth that that is a sign and seal of salvation. But don't miss that it's also a sign of community. Because as they are baptized, they're baptized into the community of faith, but they're also baptized into the community of Covenant Church. And we'll get a chance to celebrate with them the reality of that belief. All of that to say, Jesus uses baptize here with a very intentional plan for disciple-making. And that intentional plan of disciple-making is that we do this in community. It's a one-another thing. And it's essential to making disciples. We understand the commission of Jesus here is a one another thing. There's another heavy-duty doctrine in this idea of baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's called the Trinity. Right? You all get that, right? Like the Trinity is no problem for you all. Understand it. Perfect. Can do it. Listen, if, if you don't know about the Trinity, uh, um, Elijah Bombeck is here. He's about to be a seminary student. He, he, he can tell you everything you need to know about the Trinity. But j- just, in, just in case, let's look at the Westminster Catechism, question six, right? It's a process back in the 16th century in which it helped us to understand and identify uh, what it is that we believed. And question six asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And you're going to tell me, Well, you can read the whole thing, all right? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Praise be to Jesus. So you got it, right? Well, probably not, because it's exactly... Because in, in its fullness, I'm not sure that we ever completely get that on this side of heaven. But we do hear something in this text and in other texts that God, by virtue of the inspiration of scriptures, tells us that there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Ghost, and that they are all three one. We might not be able to get our feeble brains around it, but it's true. And what I want us to hear this morning is that the Godhead itself is a with a one another concept. So so not only is baptism a sign and seal of with one another, but we are baptized into an already existing one another. The Godhead, three in one. Maybe C.S. Lewis helps. There's a quote I found this week that says this. All sorts of people... Can we get it up so I don't have to look at my notes, Andrew? Is it there? 
Thank you. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, He was not love. And I have good news, He was not only two people, but He was three people. There was a community of one another. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, baptizing them is cool. There's a community of people. But listen, you're also baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the reality of an already existing community that has been there since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of time. I get a little excited about this. Because it's a one another process. This idea of making disciples, of baptizing, requires that we do it with one another. So not only baptizing, but also teaching. In the Great Commission, we see Jesus telling us that making disciples requires teaching. This doesn't come as any surprise to us, right? This is what we have made much of in the church with regard to discipleship, and and rightly so. But let me wave a bit of a caution flag here for the American church. I've seen a lot of people learning a lot of things about the Bible and Jesus and doing none of them. Back to that thought, right? We have a lot of really educated people of what the Bible says, but boy, if we only did like a fraction of what we know, we would change the world. So the, the American church has been guilty of this. We as a whole, as believers, are very educated people. We have immersed ourselves into learning, but learning is not the end all of this process in disciple-making, is it? What does the text say? Teaching them to what? Teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey all that He has commanded us. That's teaching. It does not say teaching so that they might be the smartest kids in the class, but teaching so that they may obey all that I've commanded. This is radically different, and I think sadly missing in the church today. So let's ask the obvious question this morning. What is it that Jesus is referring to here as the things that he has commanded, right? He kind of leaves it open. Teach them all that I have commanded. Well, what do we know, church, July, holy people, right? What are the two great commands? Good, right? So we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a common word there. You're brilliant. You'll get this. What is the word? Love. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Jesus is the one who said, here's the two great commandments. Love God, love others. This kind of summarizes everything that I have said to obey. Love God and love others. Listen, teaching teaching is a one another principle because teaching requires that we love. Disciple making finds life only when we do it with one another. I want to quickly do something with that and, and, and lay that last statement of Jesus in the Great Commission over another last statement of Jesus to his disciples. This one right before he'd be crucified. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip to John chapter 13. 
John chapter 13. So Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And in verse 34, he says this to the disciples. And I want you to listen for similar wording of the Great Commission, right? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? So what are the two words? I forgot to yell the first one. So so there's a a sense of command, right? He, He says, listen, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you in the Great Commission. And then this idea of making disciples shows up by virtue of this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So lay those over each other to help us understand both. That loving one another is central to both. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Is that really a new commandment? No. Jesus said, listen, that's been the commandment since the very beginning. So why would he say it's a new commandment? Well, keep reading. Um, it's a new commandment because I want you to love one another, what? Just as I have loved you. That's the new part. So you've always supposed to love one another, but now Jesus has come and he's evidenced, he's been the example of love, and, and in being the example of love, he's shown the way of love, and he says, okay, you had the command before to love one another, but here's the new command, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And at that moment, it was because he, as a servant, had washed their feet. What we know, praise be to God, as Christians now sitting here in 2019, is that Jesus literally gave up his life for the sake of others. That's the love he's calling us to. That's the new commandment. And it's a one another commandment. And then he goes on and says, um, the way that they'll know that you are my disciples, the way they will know that discipleship is happening is by virtue of your love. I think you get this, right? But the point this morning is that discipleship requires community. We can't love one another if there isn't a one another. (laughs) The Great Commission of Jesus is a one another activity. The training of becoming more like Jesus cannot happen in isolation. We need one another. We need to do it with one another. So the last point, some of you have been waiting patiently and long for what is the point. I'm hoping that the point of the Scripture is clear this morning. Listen, that the training of being a follower of Christ cannot happen in isolation. That that, that we need one another to do this. (laughs) That in the very DNA of being a disciple of Christ, God has placed a need for other people to be involved in it. That our calling out to be sent in is dependent on having one another to do it with. And there's a familiar verse that's often used in this often quoted. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's good stuff, right? That, that'll preach. And at the core of what we see this morning in the Great Commission The problem is is that we've now begun to use this verse in Hebrews as a verse to get to people to come to church on Sunday. (laughs) 
right? So, so that's sometimes in our loving, gracious ways, people that we know aren't coming said, oh, you need to read Hebrews 10, right? That we shouldn't give up meeting together. And, and, and it's an invitation to bring back church. And that's fine. That's cool. That's good. Do it lovingly and graciously. But hear this, that, that when, when the author of Hebrews is writing the church, he's not talking about coming to church. He's talking to people who are in church, who have given up meeting together. He's not talking about, you with me? It's going to get real here in a second. It's not about just coming to church. It's about the church people who are coming to church, meeting together in smaller groups and doing life together. Don't, don't give up. Don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more you see the day drawing near. This is a problem that I see in the church today. Not us, of course. We, we've got it perfect at Covenant Church. But all the other churches. So, so let's keep us from becoming like everyone else. I, I want to begin in these next three weeks that we become better, listen, at our disciple-making with one another. And that's not a call to come to Sunday worship. It is a call to be a part of a group that is smaller than Sunday worship. Call it whatever you want. But we need to not give up meeting together outside of this room and this day that we might encourage one another and teach one another and make disciples of one another in places where we'll know that we need one another. So that we can love one another and be sent with one another into all the world. One of the things that we have concluded over our work in the last year in assessment and development of mission here at Covenant Church is that, yes, we need to continue to meet together on Sundays, work hard at our worship together, but that it needs to become a part of each of our flow of life, our routine, that we meet with a group of people smaller than Sunday morning to do life with, to journey with, to learn with, to follow with, to love with, and to be sent with. That's the point. All of that for that point, yes. Look, the Bible is telling us that we need to journey with one another. We can't just do that on Sunday morning. We need to do it throughout the week. We need to do it in more intimate tender, and opportunistic places in each other's living rooms. That's the point. Listen, as a church, we're helping to develop ways for you to do that. Right? We're going to help you think through that. We're not just going to make a call in the backyard huddle and say, okay, go meet with other people, figure it out. Right? We're, we're working on ways. But listen, I, I don't want to create a program of small groups to invite you to you know what I want? I want you to be knocking down my door to say, how in the world do I do that? I want a passionate group of people at Covenant Church that says, you're right. I need to do this with somebody, with some people who will love me and go with me and be sent with me to accomplish the mission of God for the kingdom of God. You're right, Soffer. You finally got it right. Now, how do I do that? That's what I want. 
Because I can create all kinds of neat little programs with little sign-ups in the back and, and ask, plead with you, please go sign up for a small group. That's not what I want. I want you to knock down my door. I want you to knock down our door to say, how do I do that? I need that in my life. So see the picture with me. It's not a backyard football plan that says, go get open. But rather an intentional plan that says, let's work together on ourselves while we pray together about others whom God has gotten the attention of while we go together to see people's lives changed. God has built us to do that. He has built us to do this thing called life together. God has called us to training for His mission together. He has made us so that we would be called out to be sent with one another. So let's go do that and do it for His glory. Let's pray together.